Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 is our text for today. Uh, This is the 30th message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by a missionary. The Apostle Paul, in part, wrote this book so as to raise funds for his missionary journey to Spain. You need to know that the heart of God is missions, and therefore, you should either consider becoming a foreign missionary yourself, or you should most definitely help to send other missionaries out. One way that you can do that in this Christmas season is to be an encouragement to our missionaries by contacting them, maybe with an email or a call or a note. I'm certain that they would want to hear from you. I'm certain that many of them might get a little bit homesick at Christmas, and so you being an encouragement to them simply by taking a few minutes to communicate with them would be a great blessing. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is Mostly Dead All Day. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 6. As you turn, remember that God loves you. Never forget that. Listen as I read the first two verses of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Our Father in heaven, today, as we consider the ramifications of being united to Christ, I pray, dear Lord, that the portions of the sermon which are very simple, things which people have heard before, I pray, dear Lord, that familiarity will not breed contempt. But Lord, I pray that there would be a freshness in their ears as they contemplate the gospel. And then, Father, as we consider how we are to respond to grace, I pray, dear Lord, that you would enable me to explain it accurately. Lord, I pray that our response would be not only that we would understand it, but Lord, I pray that we would leave this place happy to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And Lord, that will only happen if your Spirit enables us. So we ask for his divine assistance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So one of the reasons why we are committed here at North Shore Baptist Church to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, is because context is king when it comes to interpreting a passage of Scripture. In other words, what surrounds any particular verse or passage that is what comes before and what comes after helps you to understand more fully the actual meaning of the text. And to be clear, my main goal is accuracy. More than anything else, I want to accurately explain what a passage means. Why? Because I believe with all of my heart that the power is in the Word. My outline, my illustrations, my applications may or may not be helpful, but the actual power to save and the actual power to sanctify comes from the Word itself, and therefore my main goal is to get that right. Um, I can give you a poorly organized, poorly illustrated, poorly delivered sermon 
and yet it can still accomplish great things simply if the text is accurately explained. So as we move into Romans chapter 6, the need for context is immediate. Paul asks a rhetorical question in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that thought, that question, does not emerge from a vacuum. Uh, it comes from something that Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul compares Adam and Christ. They are similar in that both of them had a huge impact upon other people. In fact, as I said two weeks ago, these two people, Adam and Christ, are the most influential people who ever lived. Uh, Adam and Christ, however, are more different than they are similar. Adam disobeyed and introduced sin and death into the world. Christ obeyed and brought life and salvation into the world. These themes are repeated frequently in Romans chapter 5. And then Paul says something at the end of Romans chapter 5, which we need for context, and that is that the law of Moses was introduced or it slipped in in order to increase the awareness of sin. But the greater reality is that where sin abounded, grace outran it and grace triumphed over it. Grace views sin as an opportunity to display its power. For context, remember what Paul said in Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, the more sin abounds, the more grace superabounds. This is true. This is absolute truth. However, if one pushes that truth beyond the boundaries of common sense, you end up with a false doctrine. And it goes like this. Uh, since sin causes grace to abound, and since grace makes God look really good, therefore, in an attempt to magnify the glory of God, let's sin it up so that grace may abound all the more. Uh, this was the teaching of the Russian monk Rasputin, who died in 1916. He said that those who sin the most require the most forgiveness. And therefore, a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than the ordinary sinner. And so if you want to be happier than the ordinary sinner, you need to sin more. Uh, that is a... Logical conclusion taken beyond the borders of reason. This was also a problem which Jude addressed. Remember that Jude wanted to write to his audience about their common salvation, but he found it necessary to change his topic because certain people had crept into the church who were doing great harm. Well, what were they doing? Jude 4. For certain people have crept in, that is, crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Who are these people? Well, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. 
How do you pervert the, go- the grace of God into sensuality? You say that sin is okay, uh, particularly sins of sensuality, in order to magnify the grace of God. These are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensu- sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, logically, it, it is impossible to be actually concerned about promoting the grace of God and the glory of God through means of sinning against God, sin which God hates. God does use evil. Joseph acknowledges this when he speaks to his brothers at the end of Genesis. They come to him and they are worried that he is going to punish them now that their father has died. And, and, and Joseph says, don't worry. Genesis twenty fifty. you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, as it is this day to save many people alive. God uses everything. But notice what Joseph doesn't say. Joseph doesn't say to his brothers, I wish that you had treated me worse. Who knows how God would have used that and what the world would be like today if you had just treated me worse. No, he says to them clearly, you meant it for evil. And that which you mean for evil is not good. It is never good in and of itself. You see, it is not an actual sincere motivation to sin more for the glory of God, but rather what it is, it is an excuse. Likewise, there is a similar distortion of the grace of God, which says this, if I am saved by grace and not by works, it all depends therefore upon what Christ has done. And it depends in no sense upon what I do. Therefore, it does not matter what I do. And if it doesn't matter what I do, then it really doesn't matter what I do. In other words, since faith alone in Christ alone is all that matters, well, I'm not going to work at all, and I'm not going to strive for holiness at all, because it simply doesn't matter. I remember very clearly when Mr. Rensel came into our sixth grade class in 1973 to administer a test. He made it very clear at the beginning of the class, this test will not be reflected on your report card. This test doesn't matter. This is just for us to know where you are as students. And I remember very specifically raising my hand and I said, Mr. Rensel, are you telling me My parents are not going to see the results of this test. It doesn't matter. It is not going to appear on my report card at all. He says, that's right. Just take the test and do the best you can. It's it's not going to be on my report card. That's right, Eddie. I remember taking the test and my pencil, and in about 55 or 65 seconds, completing the entire test, A, 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 A. I didn't even read the questions. In the fall, I show up at Scribner 7th, and I am looking around the, the class at the fellow students, and not that they were in any way bad students, but what am I doing in here with these kids? And my parents came to the guidance counselor, and they said, why is our son in a class with slower students. Not, not, that I, not that I was a genius, but why is he? They said, oh, Mr. Moore, 
you have to see his test scores. He, he, on his placement test, he, he, I, I don't even, I mean, we've never seen a score this low. Don't tell me that it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter. Either it matters or it does. Well, moving that into the spiritual realm, sadly, I went through a few years in college when I actually believed that one could say the sinner's prayer, profess faith in Christ, and by grace receive full and complete forgiveness and and fire insurance or hell insurance that never expires and then go on to live however they wish to live. Uh, This was reflected in my evangelism. I would speak to people who are living very ungodly lives. I would present the gospel to them. I would say, all you have to do is pray this prayer, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. And they would say, well, does it, do I have to, like, is there any change in my life? None whatsoever, just pray the prayer and you're in. Worse than that, I started sinning in my own life, thinking, what does it matter whether or not I sin? Because it's all of grace. Now, this goes by several different names. Some people call it easy believism. Uh, some people refer to it as accepting Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Some people call it decisionalism or decisional regeneration. But the technical theological term for this is antinomianism. Anti, against, no mas, law, against law, no law, no rules. And I'm ashamed to admit that I was a functional antinomian in college. Not only was I wrong, not only was I sad, not only was I joyless, but I was in danger according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Or you do, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does Paul write, do not be deceived? Because there's the danger of being deceived. Was I actually saved during that season? Maybe. And I would even say probably, I think so. The reason I say that I probably was saved during that season is the fact that God brought me out. He brought me out of that through deep conviction of the Holy Spirit and through friends showing me my errant theology from Scripture, pointing out to me that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But there will be many in the final day who were very religious and very active in ministry, which I was, and they will hear Jesus say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, or or clear, clear statements like 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, only God knows whether or not I was saved during that season of antinomianism. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his and let everybody who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But it both frightens and saddens me to think back upon those days. And I have a really grateful heart today to God the Holy Spirit for leading me back into the paths of righteousness. Well, back to the book of Romans. Paul knew that some would misinterpret the passage 
and the message of abounding grace and that there would be some who would take it to the point of libertine license to sin. And so he gets ahead of the argument and he cuts it off even before it starts by asking the rhetorical question in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then in light of the fact that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now this chapter 6, verse 1 was probably also prompted by another reason. This rhetorical question came about for another reason. And that is that Paul had previously been falsely accused of preaching an antinomian gospel himself. There were opponents of Paul. We do not know who they are. And they were saying Paul is a false prophet and he promotes cheap grace and he promotes loose living. Uh, We read about that back in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes in a diatribe, you remember the diatribe, it is an imaginary conversation between someone, the writer, and and an imaginary opponent. And in a diatribe, back in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul explains, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, there are people who are talking behind my back and they are saying that I am preaching that people should do evil so that good may come. I have never preached that. I'm not going to take time to defend myself at this point, but they are going to receive condemnation from the Lord for lying about me or for twisting my words in that way. But the point is, there were people who were accusing Paul of being an antinomian. And Paul does not defend this accusation in chapter 3, but he does defend it here in chapter 6. And of greatest importance is, is this. Paul does not back down from the message of free grace and add works to it so as to appease those who think that he should be speaking of works. I think it's very important that you understand the pressure that Paul was under. On the one hand, he had the Jews and the legalists saying that if you preach a gospel of grace, well, then people are going to go hog wild. And if you tell people that justification is a gift that you receive by faith, if you tell people that their works count for nothing, if you tell people that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, then here's what's going to happen, Paul. The church is going to be filled with a bunch of 12-year-old Eddie Moores who say, my work doesn't count, and since my work doesn't count and will not appear on my report card in the final day, therefore, I'm going to live however I want to live. Well then, I will accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior by faith alone. Yes, I believe that he died for me. Yes, I believe that he was raised from the dead. Thank you very much. But now it's party time. Bring on the sin. You see, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. Paul, the only way to protect the gospel And the holiness of God's people is to add works and add the law to the gospel. And Paul does not take the bait. He doesn't back down from the gospel of free grace. Uh, The first five chapters of Romans, he has driven home time after time that salvation is ours 
by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from good works. Most notably in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I am not backing down one inch. I will not add works to this gospel. Well, that's the pressure from the one side. The pressure from the other side comes upon Paul from the antinomian, from the easy-believism theologians like Ed Moore in college who said, as long as you have Jesus as your Savior, well, then you can live however you want. And Romans chapter 6 takes these two extremes, these two ungodly, heretical extremes, and brings them back into truth and balance. It is a corrective for those who misunderstood and abused grace. So, let me give you the truth of biblical salvation in simple terms, as if you have never heard it before. Because I am certain that there are some in the room here today who perhaps have never heard it before. God created you and he has a right to your life. Everybody in this room is going to be spending eternity somewhere, and there are only two options, heaven and hell. Uh, By nature and by choice, we are sinners. Uh, God is holy, and as such, he demands perfection, and we simply cannot deliver it because we have sins. We have a bad heart, and we have made sinful decisions. So we've got to get rid of our sins in order to stand before a holy God and in order to go to heaven. But we cannot get rid of our sins by doing good works or by crying or by giving money or by doing community service. There is only one payment for sin, and that is death. And you and I have earned eternal death in hell. And left to ourselves, that is where we will end up. But God, but God... But God did not leave you to yourself. He loved sinners. Remember I said at the outset, God loves you, and you need to remember that. I need to stress that. I need to stress that every week. You need to remember that, because that is the motivation that drives the book of Romans. It is the love of God. God loved sinners and sent his son, Merry Christmas, his son from heaven to earth to be born of the virgin in Bethlehem, And then this Jesus lived a perfect life in place of sinners. He never sinned, and he completely fulfilled the law of God. And then he went to the cross in place of sinners, instead of sinners, for sinners, as a substitute for sinners, and he died. He died as a substitute. He traded places with sinners like you and me. He died in our place on the cross. It was a bloody mess. He was tortured. He hung there for six hours. His body was that which bore our sins upon the tree, and because our sin was upon him, God the Father crushed him and put him to death. Why? Because he was a curse. He was carrying our sins. He didn't stay dead, but he came back to life three days later, and he's alive right now. And everyone who believes in him will be saved. It is that simple, add nothing, add absolutely nothing to that. You go before Jesus and you say, Jesus, I am lost and I am a guilty sinner. I need help and I believe that you can help me. I love you. Please save me. Please forgive me. 
I believe that you died to pay for my sins, all of my sins through your death on the cross, and I believe that you came back to life. That's it. Add nothing. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, what else do I need to do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Faith alone in Christ alone equals salvation. Now pay close attention. Because if you check out now, or if you temporarily leave and then come back, what I am about to say might confuse you. This is the point of the sermon where you need to put on your thinking caps. The truth of the gospel also says that an indicator or proof or verification or evidence that one has truly been saved is that they will turn from their old sinful way of living and that they will pursue righteous living. Let me give you an example of this. In 1 John 3.14, it says, here is how we know that we have passed from death unto life because we have love for the brethren. Now, now please note what it does not say. It does not say that we pass from death to life by loving the brethren. We pass from death unto life by believing in Jesus. But the way that we know whether or not we have actually believed in Jesus unto salvation, an indicator, not the only indicator, but an indicator, is that we will have love for the brethren. So I ask, do you love the people of God? Well, if you say no, please don't say to yourself, well, I need to start loving the people of God so that I will pass from death unto life. No, if you don't love the people of God, that is there for you as an indicator that you have not passed from death to life. You pass from death to life by believing in Jesus. What we are talking about here is something called sanctification, a real Christian will live like a Christian. Uh, they will not be living that way so as to gain God's favor. They do not pursue holiness so that they will earn heaven. It has nothing to do with salvation at all. It has nothing to do with justification at all. In other words, being declared righteous by God. It is called sanctification or spiritual growth. If one is genuinely saved, the evidence will be there through their obedience and spiritual growth, their exper experiential pursuit of holiness. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so when someone says, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved, and yet there is little or no change in their morals, that person was never actually saved. They had a false conversion. If they walk with the Lord for a few months or for a few years and then they turn back, they didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved to begin with. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us so that it might be evident, so that it might be manifest that they were never with us to begin with. 
So we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and the way that we know whether or not salvation is genuine is not by looking back at the day that we made our decision or remembering the tears that we cried when we walked the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. It is by looking at our lives right now and asking and honestly answering the question, am I today pursuing holiness? Do I love Jesus Christ? Now, just so you'll know, we're, we're not even close to getting into to verse 2 yet. We are going to get there. We are still in verse 1, but, but, but stick with me. Because what I'm setting up today is going to be the foundation for the, the first 14 verses of this chapter. In order to grasp verse 2, and the reason I say we're not close to verse 2 yet, I, I, I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that because I mentioned verse 2 that we're there. No, we're still in 1. But in order to grasp verse 2, you have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. And you must never blend nor mix these two things up. Or, to state it even more simply, salvation is one thing and spiritual growth follows after it. Or to state it even more simply, being saved is a one-time act, never to be repeated Growing as a Christian is a lifetime process. Or to state it even more simply, being saved is the same for every person. No person is more or less saved than anyone else. If you is, you is. If you ain't, you ain't. On the other hand, spiritual growth is different for every person. There are some who are very mature. There are some who are baby Christians. And so with that foundation, with that context, notice again the rhetorical question that Paul asks in 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I want to draw your attention to the word continue. The word continue literally means to abide or to dwell or to live. Paul is not asking... Are we to continue to slip into sin occasionally so that grace may abound? Because we all slip into sin occasionally. James chapter 3, verse 2. James says, we all stumble in many ways. I love the fact that James says, we all stumble in many ways. He doesn't say, you all stumble in many ways. James is including himself in this. James is the brother of Christ, but he knew himself to be a sinner like the rest of us. And he says, we all stumble in many ways. Even the most holy, sanctified saint is going to sin. Let's take cursing, for example. The most godly person that I ever knew by far was my mother's sister, my Aunt Florence. I remember the first and the only time I ever heard her curse. Boy, was my world rocked. I... I didn't know that she even knew that word. I, I, I thought I had invented some of these words. And here I am as a little boy. Something irritated her, and she let one slip. And just my, my entire worldview was, 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 was shattered. And I went to my father, and I said, 
Dad, uh, you're not going to believe what Aunt Florney said. He said, oh, I believe it, and I believe it, Eddie boy, because we're all sinners. Now, it is not okay to sin, but it is inevitable. Little children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. I don't want you to sin. It's never good to sin. But if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are all going to sin, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But there is a difference between sinning or slipping into sin and continuing sin or living a lifestyle of habitual unrepentant sin, that the general trajectory of one's life is that of sin. Let's talk about the bane on the existence of the evangelical church in 2023, which is pornography. Slipping up and looking at pornography by accident or carelessly once every six months is a horrible sin and it is damaging to your soul and if that is you, you need to get help, you need to get counseling, you need to step into the light. You're looking at porn once every six months. I cannot tell you how horrible that is. No sin, no sin is good. But that is horrible if you're doing that once every six months. However, doing it once every six months is not the definition of continuing in it or living in it or dwelling in it. What Paul is talking about in Romans 6.1 is not the person who slips up every six months. He's talking about the person who that is their lifestyle. That marks the trajectory of their life. They're looking at it every month or every week or every day. Peter did not live or dwell in the sin of denying Christ. He did it three times in the space of an hour. And it is inexcusable. It, it, it is arguably the second worst sin that anybody has ever committed. Oh, second only to Judas. But notice Peter did not live an habitual life of denying Christ. He did it once, and he was horribly broken. But it was not the pattern of his life. To continue in it means that this characterizes you. Losing your temper in traffic and blurting out a curse word is awful. It's awful because... In Romans chapter 3, it says one of the marks of an unsaved person is that their mouths are filled with cursing and bitterness. If you do that, you must repent. I am not excusing letting one slip in traffic when someone cuts you off. It is not good. You will not get me to say that is good even because it is infrequent. It is not good because it has to be in your heart in order to make its way out of your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But there is a difference between the person who occasionally gets blindsided, both figuratively and literally, from a, another bad driver and, and, and just lets one slip and the person who has 
an eruption every time something does not go their way. Martin Luther said, you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from making a nest in your hair. You see, occasional sins are terrible. I don't want you to hear me today saying that occasional sin is okay. Because your occasional sin, as well as your habitual sin, put Jesus to death. Sin is all horrible. All I am saying is, is that there is a difference between a slip-up and living continually in sin. And Paul's question in Romans 6.1 is, can we conclude that it is okay to live in habitual sin so as to magnify the grace of God? And the answer, now we're in verse 2, the answer is, by no means, or New King James, certainly not, or King James, God forbid, or contemporary English version, no, we should not, or the message, I should hope not, or there ain't no stinking way, Edmore version. Like, like it is an emphatic no. But then he explains why the no is so abrupt and so loud and so emotional. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now once again, notice that this is a rhetorical question. And the implied answer is we can't live in it if we have died to it. But we need to dig a little bit deeper into this verse to see why the implied answer is we can't. And this is where I need you to really put your thinking caps on tightly and leave them on for the remainder of the sermon. For starters, Paul is being a little bit, not a lot, but he's being a little bit snarky and a little bit sarcastic with a word play in reference to this question. If we are dead to sin, how is it possible to live in it seeing as how we are dead? it's like the reverse of the old riddle. You remember the riddle of a plane crashes on the border between the United States and Canada. Where do you then bury the survivors? Well, it's a trick question. You don't bury survivors. You invert that, and Paul is saying this, where do the dead live? Trick question. They don't live anywhere because they are dead. The dead do not live. Those dead to sin don't live in sin. But I think Paul is going beyond here a little snarkiness and a little play on words. We have to answer the question, what exactly does it mean that we who are saved have died to sin? Well, the traditional interpretation or the most popular interpretation for many years is to equate physical death to spiritual death or death to sin. Now, I'm not going to be able to fully answer this question today. It will, we will need to get in verses 3 and beyond to answer it more fully. But, but for now, for now, here's the traditional way that uh, the church has dealt with this uh, for many decades. Uh, it's to equate spiritual death with physical death. And you start with physical death and then you make analogies from what you know about physical death, and whatever you know about physical death, then you draw conclusions about what it means to be dead to sin. So, for example, one commentator by the name of John Stott said that this happened to him when he was a young Christian. 
he was told, you are dead to sin. And he said, well, what does that mean? And he was told, well, just as a dead man does not have functional senses in order to detect anything, he can't hear, he can't smell, he can't see, he can't taste, he can't feel. Well, so too, he was told, one who is dead to sin is dead to sin in that he cannot sense it. Uh, 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 you, you, you take a, a, a stack of pornographic magazines and you sit it before a corpse. He's not going to sit up and open them up and look at them. Why? Because he's dead. And so in the same way, you are dead and therefore it shouldn't affect you. Stott writes that he was taught that having died to sin, we are unresponsive to temptation just as a corpse is to physical stimulus. And since our old nature was nailed to the cross and killed, our task, however however much evidence we have to the contrary, is to reckon it dead. In other words, just keep telling yourself that you're dead and you'll be fine. If you just believe what God says about you, you will start to behave like a dead man no matter how you might actually want to desire sin. It's kind of like a mind over matter thing. It, you know what, what it is? In essence, it's, it's Christian science. You know, the, the, the whole idea of mind over matter. I'm going to tell you a joke now. I don't expect you to laugh. I'm not telling you this so that you will laugh. In fact, I don't need you. I have my grandchildren. I'm telling you this joke to illustrate the point. Man goes to his Christian science advisor and he says, my brother is sick. I, I think I should take him to the doctor. Christian scientist says, no, he's, he's not sick. He just thinks he's sick. Guy comes back a few weeks later and says, my brother is getting worse. Christian science man says, no, he's not getting worse. He, he simply thinks that he is sick. Man comes back a few weeks later and says, my brother thinks he's dead. Uh, thank you for not laughing. You're just, I might not be a good comedian, but I am a good prophet. It, it, You get the point. It's ridiculous to live life in a mind-over-matter way. One Bible commentator by the name of C.J. Vaughn said, A dead man cannot sin, and you are dead. J.B. Phillips in his translation, and for the most part, I like the J.B. Phillips translation, but in Romans 5, 6, 7, he says, A dead man can safely be said to be immune from the power of sin. And then down in 6.11, he translates it, we are to look upon ourselves as dead to the appeal to the power of sin. Not only is that a bad translation of the text, but it is dangerous to tell Christians that they have the ability to be like a corpse when it comes to sin. The only sense in which you will truly be like a corpse when it comes to sin is when you actually are a corpse. The mind-over-matter view of sanctification is really bad hermeneutics. It is a sloppy interpretation. Because as we are interpreting the Bible, we do not take metaphors in Scripture and then match them apples to apples from the physical universe to the spiritual reality. If we did, we could say something like, well, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And therefore, we should conclude that Jesus sleeps 20 hours a day, just like lions do. And that is why the hymn writer wrote, the lion sleeps tonight. See, that, that, would be, that would be the hermeneutics of taking the physical to the spiritual. 
bad hermeneutics and it's dangerous because if one who is saved is supposed to be dead to sin in that they have no draw to sin whatsoever then i need to stand in front of you today and say your pastor is not a christian and not only am i not a christian i have never met a christian dead to sin or died to sin does not mean that it no longer allures you common sense will tell you that what does it mean then well we have a clue from verse 10 Verse 10, the same phrase is used. Now, now, now stick with me here. It's the same writer. It's the same book. It's the same chapter. It's the same passage. It's the same phrase. Chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, For the death he, Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all. So there's that same phrase, that Jesus died to sin. Are we to read that and to say that Jesus died to sin means that he didn't struggle with temptation? Or that he used to be alive to sin and then he became dead to sin? No, it's not talking about temptation at all. In verse 10, that same expression used by that same author, the same expression that's used in verse 2, means that he died for our sins, that he died in our place. Furthermore, down in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why in the world would you tell people not to let sin reign if sin was already dead? That would make no sense whatsoever. Wouldn't it be superfluous to command someone to do something if that person was already dead? I'm not going to go to the president of Germany, to Steinmeier, and say, listen, listen to me. Don't let that Hitler guy talk you into another attempt at world domination. He's tricky. He's got a lot of charisma. Don't listen to him. I'm not going to do that because it would be ridiculous because Hitler is already dead. And likewise, Paul would not tell the Romans to not let sin reign in verse 12 if in verse 2 he intended for them to think that they were completely dead to sin just like a corpse is unresponsive to anything by their senses. You know full well that sin is alive and well in your heart. I think John Stott gets it right. Let me, let me, I'm going to take liberties to quote him now and to paraphrase as I go. But here, here's what John Stott says. Death is represented in scripture more in legal terms than it is in physical terms. Death in Scripture is not so much lying motionless, but death in Scripture is the just penalty for sin. Pause quote, and he is absolutely right. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, that sin, you shall surely die. Last book in the Bible, Revelation, what is the fate of the sinner? It is the second death. Even here in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 32, those who live like this are deserving to die. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin entered the world and death through sin. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Death, when it is spoken of in Scripture spiritually, is not so much a lack of responsiveness, but what it is 
it is connected with a condemnation and with a penalty. Romans 6.10, when it says that Christ died to sin, it means that he bore sin's condemnation through his death, and therefore sin no longer has a claim on him. And how do we know that? We know that because God raised him from the dead in order to demonstrate the satisfactoriness of his sin-bearing, and he now lives forever. Stay with me. I'm almost done. What is true of Christ is true of us since we are united to him. We died to sin, Romans 6.2, simply means that in our union with Christ, when he died, we did too. When he died on the cross, we died too in that we were joined to him. Listen to how clearly this is spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. What does it mean that we are dead to sin? It means that Christ died for us and that when he died, we did too. And therefore, I think when Paul in Romans 6, 2 says that we are dead to sin, it means that we are united to Christ in his death. And since that was true, Paul asks, how in the world, if you were united with Christ in his death, can we turn around and then abide and live and dwell in habitual sin any longer? And the implied answer is you can't. You see, my point is simply this. Us being dead to sin means that we are united to Christ. And when he died, we died with him. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. When Paul says that we died to sin, he is not exhorting believers to cease from sin. He is proclaiming to them the good news that they have died to sin as well. A statement of fact. He goes on, we could say the judicial is the basis for the transformative. And that's what we will talk about in the weeks to come. In other words, the power of a holy life comes from a proper understanding and appreciation for the death of Christ. The gospel is of first importance in our salvation, and the gospel is of first importance in our spiritual growth or sanctification. And Paul asks, how is it possible that someone could be united to Christ in his death, in other words, be dead to sin, and then turn around and live and abide and dwell and be ruled by sin? He says, that is impossible. I think about everything that he did for me and my salvation. How in the world can I then go back and live in habitual sin? For when the power of the gospel truly saves a person, they cannot continue to live in sin. They will slip up. They will stumble. They will have doubts. They will go through droughts. They might even go through seasons of backsliding like I did when I was in college. But they will not and they cannot live indefinitely in sin. They will come out of that. How does that work? I'll see you next Sunday morning and we will explain that. For now, here are four th closing thoughts. 
Number one has to do with evangelism. Don't ever back down from a free grace message. Do not feel the pressure to add works to your evangelism. When sharing the gospel with the unsaved, stress the free grace of God above all else. Repentance is something that is granted to them. It is not something that you have to beat them with. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you're preaching of the gospel, if, if you're preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you should be an antinomianism, antinomian. I'm not saying you should promote antinomianism. I'm saying that, 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 that our message is faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. What else do I have to do? Nothing. Number two, God's grace does more than just justify us. God's grace sanctifies us. And if it doesn't sanctify us, that is, make us holy in our living, then it hasn't justified us. And if it hasn't justified us, then it isn't God's grace. God's grace saves us and also works to make us holy in our daily lives. The grace of God has appeared, Titus chapter 2, and it teaches us to deny ungodly lusts. Number three, examine yourself. And ask yourself the question, are you living in, are you abiding in dwelling sin? If you are, you need to seriously consider whether or not you are actually saved. And finally, the reason that God justifies and sanctifies us is because he loves us. I asked you to remember that at the beginning. I asked you not to forget it. I hope that as you leave today, you will remember that, that he loves us. All right. 140 down, 293 to go, which means what? We are getting there. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, for free grace at the cross. Lord, may we not, may we not continue in sin that grace abound. Lord, may we who have died to sin through the death of Christ no longer live in that, but Lord, may we live unto righteousness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.